morning. <laughs> this is uh, my first time of speaking twice on the exact same subject. So, um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But it's lovely to be here. Thank you for um, coming. And as, as um, you just heard, this is a series which is really about questions and objections to the Christian faith. And I've been asked to come and speak on an objection that actually is one that I've looked into a lot because it's one that mattered a lot to me. And the question was, is, is Christianity just as invalid as any other religion? And I don't know if you're here today, particularly because this, like me, is a question that you are grappling with. Um, So I grew up um, in a Christian home, and as a child, I think I felt pretty convinced that um, God was real and that Jesus Christ was God. And the reason that I, when I look back, because I didn't really question it much, but the reason I think I had for feeling uh, sure that this was true as a child was mainly because, one, I felt that God loved me. And just as a child, I'd walk around in the world and see a beautiful um, sunset or beautiful, uh, smell beautiful, fragrant uh, bouquet of flowers, and I thought, gosh, this, is, this, is, this must be the gift of a, of a kind God that loves his world. Um, I sometimes would feel, in particular moments, God's love for um, an individual. Uh, and sometimes it felt bigger than my own love. It felt like God was showing me how much he loved someone else through a sort of compassion I was experiencing. And then other times, which I think is really important, I felt for me, God loved me as an individual. And that was just something I experienced. Um, and then I also just happened to find out, find that as I followed the sorts of things Jesus said in the Bible, things kind of went well for me. So I noticed that when I was generally polite to my parents and good, that things were happy in the household. If I did not kick my sister under the table, which is always tempting, um, you know, things were sort of better. I noticed that when I did something wrong and I apologized again, it had a good impact. I noticed that when people cared for the poor in the society that I lived in, there was a good impact. And these were all just things I read about in the Bible, things particularly that Jesus spoke about um, that seemed to just make life good. And for all these reasons, I think I just accepted it. Then I became a teenager. And um, incidentally, I had uh, deci- I decided against showing you pictures of myself as a six-year-old and then as a 14-year-old. I thought that wasn't actually a very professional way to start a PowerPoint presentation. I also thought I wouldn't distract you with uh, questions of how on earth did she get through her teenage years with such a fringe. Um, So we we won't go there. But things changed, and I had a group of friends as I got to high school, um, none of whom were Christians. I had quite a few atheist friends. I had a very uh, a friend who'd become a Buddhist. Um, I had a Muslim friend and a Hindu friend. And um, I later became friends with a lot of Jewish people, actually, at university. So I had a great sort of variety of friends. And the truth was, they'd actually, a lot of them were a lot more intelligent than me and also had engaged with objective truth um, a little bit more than I had. And so these friends started to ask me um, questions about my firmly held Christian beliefs, questions that actually I hadn't asked. And so I started to wonder, okay, how is it possible that I feel so sure that God exists? What sort of evidence, proof do I have? And at that time I thought, I'm not sure I do have that much. Um, I did also start to wonder, how is it that there are so many good and intelligent people who clearly disagree with me on this issue? 
There was that, there was that question. And then there was a question of, okay, I'm 14, not brilliant at science. How is it possible that I can claim to have, to know the truth? And to be honest, those sorts of questions just floored me, and I came to the conclusion I couldn't. There wasn't enough evidence for me to continue to believe in this way that I had, that Jesus was, in fact, God. Um, and so one night, having thought it all through, I decided this is not, um, I cannot continue in this way. And I don't know if you, having come here today, have ever gone through something like that, where you actually step back and you say, okay, what is the evidence for the truth that I, that I believe? You know, whether you're an atheist or whether you're from another faith, I wonder if you've had a question in your mind um, about what evidence is, there is. And I wonder if, like me, you've actually gone through a time of questioning. Um, at the end of this talk, I'm going to talk about why I came out of that to believe again in the claims of Jesus Christ and not to just believe them abstractly, to really believe them um, for myself and my salvation. And I'm going to talk about that at the end. But I thought my friend's questions were pretty good. And to be honest, I'm glad that they asked them because I was, I was pretty ignorant, actually, and I needed to think through some of these things. And uh, unlike me, I think the people of High Wycombe seem to be quite um, intelligent because this survey has been done and I was sent all the questions in order to prepare for this talk. Um, the questions that on the streets of High Wycombe, people are asking about this question. How can one religion, and namely today we're talking about Christianity, how can it claim to be true and to be more valid than any other religion? And then obviously there's another question about the other religions. You know, is one of them valid? And how do we, how do we even begin to assess this question? So this is the lovely task I've been given. So <laughs> thank you. Easy. Um, I should just say uh, as a caveat at the beginning of this talk, this is a massive question. And I am actually going to have to unfortunately be quite vague in some ways in order to try and make my, my overall points in the time that I have. So I, I understand if, if at any point you think, actually, I don't feel like you've given that way of thinking justice, please do uh, just come and chat to me at the end. Um, I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, but I'll do my best to, to try to explain uh, to you the situation as I see it. So the questions that um, basically came out of the survey are going to come up on the board. Um, on the board? I was a teacher once, <laughs> sorry, on the overhead um, in a second. Okay, here they are. I've basically grouped them into four major questions. The first question, aren't all religions true? In other words, isn't it true that there isn't an ultimate reality? Some people um, in High, we High Wycombe seem to think that perhaps when an atheist dies, for them, they will never regain consciousness, but perhaps for a Christian, they'll meet Jesus. Perhaps for a Muslim, they will encounter Allah, and etc., etc. Um, that was one of the questions, was is it maybe very relative because there's no ultimate reality? The next um, group of questions went like this. Aren't all religions actually one religion? Isn't it true that... Uh, Sorry, in other words, they are all aspects of truth, but mainly regarding the deeper principles and not the facts. So actually, all of them have an, some kind of grasp on truth, but, but they don't, maybe they don't even realize they're actually all talking about the same thing. There is a truth, but it's one big truth, which everyone has sort of an aspect of. Okay, the next question, how can anyone claim to know what's true? Surely it's um, impossible when it comes to God. You can't ever prove anything. 
So why bother finding out? Why is this question even important? And then lastly, even if it were possible to know and find the truth, doesn't it just lead to arrogance, intolerance, and religious violence and oppression? And I just really want to say that I think this is a very important question, especially um, facing our world at the moment. And it's not something I think any of us should... And and I'm so glad that we're all here today because I think it shows that none of us take this lightly. Um, It's important... Uh, the ramifications, there are ramifications for what we believe. And if it's going to lead to violence and oppression, that we need to stop and ask, what is that about? So that is the outline. So I'm going to try and briefly touch on each of those questions um, and then come to where I feel um, I have landed on this question of truth. So there is a battle for truth in our world. And I'm going to frame it in terms of like a boxing ring. And... All those questions, I think, leave us basically with four different contenders for truth. So um, if you uh, think of uh, these four different contenders um, as as boxes, here they are. Um, I'm going to add a fifth, and I'll tell you why I've put Jesus Christ in his own category um, in a minute. But the first one is this question of, it's basically postmodernism, and it's a denial of truth as a category. And it's that, that first question that we just looked at. There is no ultimate truth. It can just sort of be true for for everyone. Then secondly, this is a relativism that comes from postmodernism, but it's also very similar to the Eastern philosophies, which says actually there is one truth, and this is a subsuming of everything into truth. Then we have uh, logical positivism, which basically touches on this question of is it possible to even speak meaningfully about God? With our finite minds and our limitations, Surely we can't actually get there anyway, so what is the point of even engaging in these questions? Um, That was espoused mainly by A.J. Eyre. I'm going to look at his formulation of that question, but it actually comes from a history of philosophers like David Hume and Immanuel Kant who got him there. Um, Then the fourth one is rival truth claims. So there are these different uh, religions in the world and worldviews. I'll put atheism actually in this category that say, look, there is a truth. Whether that truth is... There is a God, and that God is like this. Or whether there are, you know, it's a polytheistic religion that believes there are many gods, or whether it's a Buddhist um, engagement with reality, or an atheist um, understanding of reality, which would be naturalistic and say, look, there is no God. All of these are truth claims. And in many ways, Christianity fits into that. Again, it says, this is what is true. So why have I put Jesus Christ as the fifth contender in the boxing ring on his own? And the reason I've done that is that Jesus Christ made a claim that no other leader of any world religion has ever made. And that is, he didn't just claim that he would lead people to the truth or that there were a set of propositions that people should believe because they're true. He said something entirely different. He said, I am the truth. I am, in my being, the truth. Okay, so it's a bit mysterious. You're like, Jesus, what are you actually saying? And we're going to look at that at the end. But that's why he's, not, he's in a slightly different category because none of the other world leaders, uh, Moses uh, or uh, Muhammad or um, any of the other world leaders have said, I am the truth and I am God. I am ultimate reality. Okay, so I'm going to try and take us through the first three very quickly and then we'll look a little bit at um, the last two together. So the first one is this question of 
postmodernism, the denial of truth as a category. Don't know if you've ever heard it phrased like this in a conversation. There is no such thing as truth. Has anyone ever said that to you? Don't know if I've got lots of friends who, who would say that to me. And as, just as a caveat, a caveat, I did a humanities degree, and there's actually a lot in postmodernist postmodern thinking that it's really important, and I'm glad that we have um, had those thinkers to help us engage with certain things. But I, so I am going to, in some ways, summarize, but ultimately, I think there is a contradiction at the heart of what postmodernism is saying. So postmodernism is a, basically a skepticism about meta-narratives, saying anyone who's trying to tell you this is the way truth is, and philosophers are generally trying to do that, often world leaders and politicians and religious leaders are saying, look, this is truth. And postmodernism says, look, we've had enough of that. And actually, there were some, um, there's some people who say, actually, that's a manipulation, and you need to be steer clear of that. There is no truth that can be known. Now, I have some time for some of that, actually, because I think we can all agree that we've seen people controlling and manipulating with power, using truth claims. But there is a problem with this, um, with this claim, and you may have already noticed it. If you open it out in full, it says, it is true that there is no such thing as truth. That's ultimately what the claim is saying. It is absolutely true that there are no absolutes. It's borrowing from this idea of absolutes and truth in order to make its own claim. So already we have an inherent contradiction in this um, way of thinking. And it renders itself meaningless in the end. Um, as one philosopher put it, if someone tells you that there is no such thing as truth, they are asking you not to believe them, so don't. Um, in Psalm 18, I just read this the other day, and I wanted to just share it with you because I felt like it was relevant. Um, in Psalm 18, verse 30, it says this. It's talking of the God of the Bible. Well aware that there, it was in a context where there were many different gods in the surrounding nations that were being worshipped, the Baal and um, all the others. And the psalmist, is actually King David at the time, says this. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? And do you know what I notice about this um, verse? Uh, is that it says the word of the Lord proves true. And do you know, implied in that is that actually the Christian gospel, what the message it can be held up to scrutiny. So if you're here today and you don't know if this is true and you're doubting and you're wondering, I just really want to encourage you that the Bible actually encourages you to doubt in a sense, that you're allowed to have these questions and that God says, as you come to know me, you will see that I will prove true to you. So he's not putting a gun to your head and saying, listen, you better believe because I am God actually and in fact, I want you to believe that so you just, you just believe. <laughs> That, that's really not what God's saying. He's saying, I, am, I will prove true to you if you get to know me. And interestingly, in the New Testament, Jesus is often referred to as the Word. He is the Word of God, and it says the Word will prove true. So basically, it's saying Jesus will prove true to you. 
Um, but you may have noticed there is an exclusive claim in this verse as well. It does say there is no God like our God. There is no, it says, this God, his way is perfect. So there is an exclusivity here. But it says all who take refuge in him. At the same time as there is an exclusivity, there is an absolutely open invitation to anyone. I had a friend once who said to me, oh, you know, Christianity is for those, you know, for the, for the Christians. And I sort of thought about that for a while. And I said, that's so interesting you say that because the Bible says Christianity is for the whole world. It claims that God created everyone, so no one is, anyone, is any less open to him than, than anyone else. And actually, the Bible tends to say sometimes if you're brought up in this religion, Christianity, actually, he's interested in knowing you, and sometimes you can get caught up in a, a faith context, but you've never actually engaged with it yourself. And, and that's, what, that's what the God of the Bible is interested in. He's interested in all people everywhere. Um, okay, that was as an aside, right. The first contender we were talking about is postmodernism, this denial of truth as a, as a category. And we had, um, it ended with the question, is there such a thing as truth? And the answer was, is that true? Is that statement true? Well, there is no such thing as truth. Is that statement true? Right, so the next contender um, I want to look at, sorry, just going back for a second. I missed a slide, didn't I? Uh, Michel Foucault, I just wanted to end on the postmodernism thing briefly by saying there is a contradiction within the claim itself. That's not the only issue with it. I, I strongly believe that there are some damaging effects, actually, of this um, way of thinking. And if you've read any postmodern thinkers, it's actually very depressing. A lot of them commit suicide because... The ultimate end, if you actually follow it to its actual conclusion, which people like Friedrich Nietzsche were brave enough to do, they, they were left with darkness. That's what they claimed. Because it's sort of nihilism, which is the, the ultimate end of a postmodernist way of thinking, that there is a nothingness. Because if you let go of an ultimate reality, you have to let go of meaning. Meaning is a function of truth. If there's no ultimate truth... There is no ultimate meaning. And if there is no ultimate meaning, there can be no ultimate hope. And so you've lost meaning, you've lost hope, and you're left with quite a dark existence until you die, and there is no hope for anything beyond that either. The reason I say you lose meaning is because you lose an ability to assess between right and wrong. Good and evil can't be judged if there is no ultimate moral lawgiver. It is up to anyone. If anyone's read J.M. Kutsia or any of those sorts of writers, he writes this book, Disgrace, where it's, it's very disturbing. I remember going to speak to my lecturer about it after my third year of university um, because he, he talks about this right to desire, and he says that was his truth. And so he seduces one of his students in this story, in this book. Um, but then his daughter gets raped, but he has no grounds upon which to accuse them of doing anything wrong to his daughter because he has created this worldview that there was no ultimate wrong, right and wrong. Who, who is he to tell them that they have done anything wrong? And you get this sort of darkness of complete lack of anything to stand on. And that verse I said in Psalm 18 says, God is our rock. He has something to stand on. And, and you know, 
I just wanted to say that because I think writers like Michel Foucault, although saying much that's very interesting, most of which I can't understand, <laughs> they said that actually all truth claims are attempts to manipulate and, con and control. Now, you may have noticed that there's, a, again, a problem with this because he is saying all truth claims, are you listening to me? All truth claims are just attempts to control. Have you got that? You better believe me. There's, there's a, we have an inherent contradiction already. We are invited in his own philosophy not to believe him or to assume that he's trying to control us. So we have this contradiction, but we also have, as I said, some of the damaging effects of it um, that we can see in our world. And incidentally, um, religion has a lot to answer for in terms of wars and violence. And I really think that, um, especially as a Christian, we've got so much that we need to continue to actually say sorry for. But... I just want to say it's not just religion that causes violence. I think it's more human nature, unfortunately, because if we look at the 20th century, um, these sorts of postmodernist thinking, especially nihilist, nihilist think thinkers, had a great effect on some of the barbaric acts of the 20th century, which wreaked havoc in our world. And so it's also, um, you know, there, there isn't, it's not just that this will create a utopia. Um, although often I think people are trying to get away from religious violence when they look at these worldviews. And what I'm trying to say is I, I'm not sure that is the answer. Um, okay, so secondly, um, we have this question of um, Eastern philosophies and relativism. So now you might have heard this in conversation expressed like this. It's your truth. That's great for you. Um, that is true for you, um, but it's not true for me. I have my truth. Now, this sounds really nice, doesn't it? And in some ways, we have some um, experiences of this. So, for example, you might say to me, chocolate ice cream is the best ice cream in the entire world. And I'll say to you, that's your truth. Strawberry cheesecake hagen <laughs> Now that is the best ice cream in the world. And that's my truth. So you can see how these sorts of ideas could catch on. But again, we have an inherent contradiction in this way of thinking. So I've got it up on here on the board. It says truth is subjective construct, so it's just true for the individual that they've constructed it, but there's no ultimate overarching truth. So ultimately, that leaves us with whatever you choose to believe has to be true because I, there's no assessor of truth. So that means that actually all religions must, by definition, become true. So your, def your truth has to be true. I, I, can't, I can't say otherwise. Everything, um, therefore has to fall into a category of truth, and there's no distinction between belief and truth. And this is where we end up with these Eastern philosophies. But you might have started to, be, uh, started to pick up a pattern here. If you say all truth is relative, the question is, is that absolutely true? Is it absolutely true that all truth is relative? Or otherwise phrased, truth is subjective, it's for you. The question would be, is that an objective truth claim? You can't escape these truth categories. They just exist. Um, sometimes this is uh, uh, shown in a picture like this. So um, on the screen, in a second, you will see a picture of an elephant. Here we go. Now, some of you may have uh, seen this before, so forgive me if you have. But basically, this is the story of the four blind sages. It's um, often uh, constructed to be the different leaders of the world religions or different ways of thinking. Um, so one of them is touching, and you know, they're blind and they can't see, and one of them is touching the trunk of the elephant and saying, you know, this is so clearly a hose. 
This is a hose. And the next one's touching the leg of the elephant and says, no, this is a tree. Come on. The other one's touching the ear. This is a leather. Sh I can never remember what that is. Sheath of leather. leather. I don't even know what that is. And then the last one says, right, this is the tail. And, and they're like, this is a rope. And what this image is trying to portray is that actually all world religions ultimately are saying the same thing. They're all talking about the same thing. They just don't know it. Okay, so this is what this picture is trying to say. But have you noticed a problem with this picture? Who, who is telling us that, in fact, this is an elephant? The person who sees this picture is in a privileged position of intellectual and spiritual insight over and above all the major world leaders such that they can say, look, Jesus, he thinks this is the thing, but actually I can see he just had a part of it. It's not to say that it's not true, but what I'm saying is the person is claiming to have that greater insight. Uh, Ravi Zacharias, who's a well-known philosopher and apologist, says this about the picture. Um, the obvious seems to escape the one using this illustration. That smuggled into the analogy is the, the idea that it is, in fact, an elephant that is under discussion, and not any of those errant pronouncements made by those devoid of light and sight. And that is the other claim of the relativist, in a sense that all these major world leaders are blind. Um, it is, in fact, an elephant. This is a truth claim, that this is the ultimate truth, and I can see it. And, and I think it's just important to grasp this, because often relativism sounds very humble. Everyone has a, an aspect of truth, and there's a part of me that was very drawn to it for a while, until I realized it was in itself a way of seeing the world, and it was a claim that it was also exclusive. In fact, it excludes most people in the world, because if you go speak to a devout Muslim or a devout Christian or a devout Jew, they will not usually agree with you that all religions are saying the same thing. So while it sounds appealing, it's actually simply another truth claim. Another way of um, uh, picturing this would be, you know, a mountain. So in, I come from South Africa, and that's a great mountain if you ever go to visit, to climb, Lion's Head. And, um, you know, sometimes people say, look, all religions lead to God. Have you heard that? All paths are up the same mountain. Again, it sounds lovely, but where is this photo being taken from? <laughs> it's a helicopter or, you know, some cloud, angelic position of insight to see that actually, in fact, all the roads lead to God. You can't, you can't say that unless you have some deeper insight um, the other option would be if you've actually walked the road and died and found out. And most of the people who are making this claim, as far as I'm aware, aren't, haven't come back from the dead to tell us. And so these, these claims have in and, in and of themselves their own truth claim to them. Um, but you may be thinking, I don't know what your background is, but sometimes people say, okay, look, but you are using a Western form of logic, which is a bo an either-or, very black and white, and actually, there are other ways of thinking, um, particularly in the East, where you can say there are both and forms of logic. Um, and it's true that our Western logical laws, there are three that we, we work with, and the second of which is non-contradiction. So something can't be true and at the same time be false. So it is not true that I am, um, you know, an American man. That is not true. I am a South African woman. And it can't be uh, both. These things are not... Um, it's the law of non-contradiction, as I said. And Ravi Zacharias is an Indian uh, professor, and he'd gone to speak at this university. 
on the question of, is Jesus the only way to God? And while he was speaking, he had this American professor um, s- stopped him and said, you know, I'm, I feel like you're doing a disservice to Eastern thinkers because you're not accepting that they have this different way of thinking. So they go out for lunch afterwards and he discusses it and the, this American professor says, look, you're just not getting this both and way of thinking. And Ravi listens to him for a long time and eventually he puts down his pen and he takes up his knife and fork and Ravi says, can I just ask you one question? And the professor says, yeah. He says, are you saying that either I must accept a both and system of thought or nothing else? Either or. And this, he said the professor just stared at him in stunned silence and then said, uh, the either or system of thought does tend to emerge, doesn't it? And Ravi said, I'll tell you something. Even in India, we look left and right before we cross the road. We understand it's either the bus or me, not both. <laughs> All of that to say is that there is a, um, things cannot be both true and untrue at the same time, and we don't live in that way. So lastly, in this uh, way of thinking, logical positivism, basically what the idea is here is we're limited human beings. God is surely unknowable to us. What is the point of us asking these questions? We'll never find out. And isn't it arrogant to presume that we could? And so A.J. Eyre came up with these two tests for what is meaningful to talk about. And he said, firstly, you can, if something is true by definition, so um, bachelors are unmarried men, that's true in and of itself. It doesn't need any other things to make it true. It's true. That's fine. You can talk about that kind of thing. And then he said, anything else has to be subject to measurable, repeatable tests. And if you can do that, great, that can be true, and you can speak of that. Anything else that you want to talk about outside of those categories is meaningless. And so, therefore, God, not fitting into either one of those categories, becomes, by definition, just meaningless, and so you aren't able to talk about him anymore. The last time I'll be saying to you, have you noticed a pattern? Someone came back to AJ Hare and said... "Um, So this was Language, Truth, and Logic, and it was actually very influential in the 1930s in Oxford, and was published, and everyone was thinking this is amazing new philosophy, uh, bringing together ideas of the Vienna Circle at the time. And someone said to him, but um, A.J. Eyre, what about your own assertion, this statement? Is it true by definition? No. Can you subject it to measurable, repeatable tests? No. A.J. Eyre went away and thought about this. Came back and said, sorry, there's a third category category of exceptions. And then the question was, well, how many exceptions are there? Well, only one, um, my statement. (laughs) And actually, by the end of it, Oxford University Press uh, Dictionary um, basically said that these uh, systems seem impossible to maintain. And this way of thinking was actually kind of dismissed academically. But have you noticed it's still very popular in our world to say, look, we can't know So let's not even think about it. Only these things that we can absolutely prove or or say are true by definition are are worth talking about. These ideas are still quite popular and current, but actually, intellectually, they don't really hold weight. And I want to talk a bit later about, okay, so how do we talk meaningfully about God? Um, So these are the three that I say fit into this question of can we even engage with truth or are are all religions the same? Then we have the fourth Uh, I would say, contender in the ring for truth. And I would put all truth claims into that category. All religions and all systems of thought that claim an ultimate reality. And 
what I really want to say about this is that there are many voices out there that are calling for us to believe in different things, different truths. And what, um, what, what the postmodernists were doing was trying to step away from an abuse and a manipulation and a, and a, um, and a yeah, I guess a, a will to power and a will to control. And I think that that is important because it's true that these um, truth claims can be coercive. But how do we know which one is true? How do we even begin to assess? Um, I think there are three important tests that we can all ask of whatever truth we are looking at, truth claim, and asking questions of. One, is it, in, is it internally coherent? Does it make sense in and of itself? And I've hopefully shown you why some of these don't. But I think that's an important question to ask. Does it actually make sense as a, a, it, within itself? Or does it already just start to contradict itself many times over? The second question is, does it cohere with outside reality, with things you know to be true, historical facts? And incidentally, I studied history, and we can know things, can't we, about history? There is evidence. It might not be able to be repeatable, measurable scientific tests, but there is evidence for things. And, and there was an outcry when a group of people claimed that the Holocaust never happened. Do you remember? That came for, at one point in history. And, you know, the world said, no, it happened. We have evidence. And so there is evidence for historical things, and that's important. It, it's, not, it's not irrelevant. We can't just say that doesn't matter whether or not that happened. It does matter. And then lastly, is it livable? Is it actually possible to live under this way of thinking? And not just that, does it actually bring life to me in the way that I think deep down all humanity longs for? That's why we even think about these things. That's what makes us different to animals, is we have this longing for the good life. The American dream, in a sense, is an example of that. People longing for the, the right kind of life, the good thing. What is that in us? And I think the question, that's an important question to ask because it's in, innate. It's inherent. I said the last contender in this ring for truth was Jesus Christ himself. In this question, how is it possible to know? Um, after this, uh, the talk earlier this morning, someone came up to me and said, I still don't understand. How is it possible for us to know God? So you're saying Jesus came and claimed to be God. Why should I believe him any more than uh, these other world religions who tell me mostly that Jesus was not God? Why should I believe in that? And I said to him, well, I think you're right that God in the eternal being, uh, the, the uh, ultimate creator of the world, surely is unknowable to us. We are limited. Our, our, you know, I'm sure my mind's already deteriorating. I was thinking that the other day. I'm sure I peaked at like 24 intellectually. <laughs> you know, with all those sorts of questions, we wonder, how is it possible for us to really know God? And I said to this guy, I said, actually, I think the only way would be if that God chose to make himself knowable to us. That would be the only way we could possibly speak of knowing God. And the Bible says that Jesus was God eternal in a Trinitarian form. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, chose to take on human flesh because that's what we can understand. 
That's how, and in Colossians, the writer of St. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. If you've ever gone into those Italian uh, chapels uh, and looking at the beautiful frescoes, the beautiful paintings on the ceiling, they're often too vast. You can't take them in. So there'll be a little mirror on a coffee table in the middle so that you can just go and see, and it's, it's an easier way to sort of grasp this beauty. And basically, that's what the Bible says Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. When you look at him, God has chosen that everything we need to know about God is visible in Jesus, his character, how he defines power, being born in a stable, subjecting himself to being in a womb for nine months. He's humble. He's not afraid of women. He's not afraid of outsiders. He talks to people that the disciples wouldn't even talk to, and they often record how shocked they were at his behavior. This, this man, Jesus, we are told, was God showing to humanity, this is what I'm like. You can know God. And Jesus made an extraordinary claim. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And you know what I love about this contender in the ring? <laughs> is that this is exclusive, and he says, I am the truth. I am, he says also, the way and the life. If you want to find the way, if you want to find the good life, and I think I experienced that even as a little child, something of that, that come and follow me, come and see, and I will prove that I'm true to you. And sometimes, you know, we want to step back and say, actually, I want to prove, um, I need to be able to prove through tests, first, um, firstly, whether or not Christianity is true. And I, I think it's important to do these academic tests and ask these questions. But I actually think, as well as being very open to our intellectual questions, there is another question that Jesus asks of people. And if he truly was God, this makes sense to me. He says, you know what, I'm interested in your mind, your intellect, your capabilities academically. In fact, I created them, so I'm quite happy with your rationality and your desire to tease things out. That seems to me to be given to us by God. So he doesn't reject that. But in addition to it, and more importantly, he says, do you know what? I care about you. I want to know you as a person. And Jesus invites us to test, in a sense. It says, you will, as you come to know him, he will prove true to you. And you know, in relationships, C.S. Lewis, who uh, wrote all those Narnia books, obviously a famous Oxford, um, come out of, of Oxford, he also wrote a lot about Christianity. And he said, do you know that actually, sometimes people say, well, I can't, I can't have faith in God until I can prove that he's true. And I can know for certain, in almost in a scientific way. And C.S. Lewis challenged that. And he said, do you know, relationally, that's not really how we, how we interact, do we? If you want to have a relationship with someone, you actually have to, there is an aspect of faith to it where you have to come to them and take a risk and get to know them. And then, of course, if they don't prove true to you, if they prove to be untrustworthy, you step back. But there is, when it comes to people, we can't step, stand back and just do some tests and say, right, I've figured out that you're completely trustworthy. There's always that aspect of faith to it. But he said it's not a blind faith. It's a faith based on evidence in the same way that our relationships are based on evidence. And we trust people increasingly as we have ed evidence of their character, of their behavior, and who they really are. And I think that is the invitation that Jesus is making to us. And 
C.S. Lewis said, we don't stand before a proposition that demands our intellectual assent. If the Bible is true and if Jesus is true, C.S. Lewis said, we stand before a God who asks for our trust. And sometimes that can be the hardest part of all. Sometimes we've been hurt in our lives and people have let us down and actually trusting anyone can be very hard. But that is the claim of the Bible, that God is true, not just true in that he exists, but he's true in that everything he says you can trust. Um, on the last slide on this uh, PowerPoint is a... Um, I read about um, in Italy there was a, an artist and this artist decided he wanted to paint a picture of a, someone on the street and he asked, um, he went up to a man that he, he saw and he said, would you mind, could I paint your portrait? And, you know, would you come to my um, studio uh, tomorrow morning? And, you know, the man said, great, that's a great job, I'll, you know, take that, thanks. Um, and so, you know, the artist eagerly awaited for him the next morning and the, sure enough, the man arrived. But he found a place to wash He'd managed to borrow a suit, and he'd arrived all in his best, and the artist couldn't paint him. And, you know, the story reminded me of what the Bible says God is like, and that the truth of Christianity is that the world has become lost in its sin, in an overarching sense and in an individual sense, and that each one of us can't do anything about it. And, you know, the fourth contender I spoke about were these rival truth claims. And I think most of them end up saying, you need to be good. My Jewish friends, I remember at university, said, but surely that's what Christianity is saying as well. You need to be good. You need to be, do all these things, give to charity and be kind to your mother and, you know, all these sorts of things that all the religions say. And I said, yes, you know, they, it talks about that. But actually the ultimate reality the Bible talks about is that we are unable to do anything about our state. And that just like this guy... We can't pitch up trying to clean ourselves up. That God invites us just as we are. And as we come to him in that state, he will pour out his love on us. And that's my experience. That as I had all these questions about God, I actually had an impersonal encounter with God from where I started to ask these questions, so many questions about science, about language, about all these different things. And the more I asked, the more I found he proved true and that he's been a rock that I can stand on. I just invite you this um, afternoon now, <laughs> if this is something that you want to investigate, uh, there's a story about Doubting Thomas, you may have heard of in the Bible. He's one of the disciples, and he's not kind of, shame, he got lumped with this name, Doubting Thomas, forever and ever, um, because he doubted. Jesus had risen, we're told. All his disciples saw him, that he did not stay dead. He was God, come alive again. Thomas couldn't believe it. He said, what is this? And, you know, Jesus didn't reject him and say, well, well you're a rubbish disciple. I told you this was going to happen. Here I am. You still don't believe me. You know, I might have done that if I was God, um, but not Jesus. He put out his hands with the, we're told, the scars in his hands. And he said, see for yourself. He invited him, come and look closer. And even if some of what I've said to you sounds incredible, it sounds unbelievable, there's something in you that thinks, actually, we've talked about the ring of truth with all the contenders. If there's something that I've said that has the ring of truth to it, can I encourage you to come and look, take a closer look and see for yourself? And I believe Jesus will prove true to you as he has to me. 
I realize that I've completely left the question of violence and arrogance. It's a really important one. There isn't time to go into it. It's my contention that Jesus absolutely does not in any way, shape, or form condone violence, that he always offers himself, but that no one is, a, is but he does not force himself, and so there is no aspect of that in Christianity. I, can't, I don't have time to go into that, but I just wanted to say that because I think it's, it's incredibly important in this world, especially in the times that we're living in. But if that's something that you're, you're interested in, and certainly the church has not always lived by that, I think, um, please do come and talk to me about it. But thank you so much for listening, and it's been wonderful to be with you. Thank you.